0: Hi, and welcome to The Escape Artist, a podcast for the culturally curious traveller. I'm Edwina Hart, I'm a travel journalist and photographer, and each week I'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape. We'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavours. This podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination.
1: Hi, I'm Ravinda Bogle, and I'm a traveller who's constantly in search for new ingredients.
0: My guest today, Ravinda Bogle, is one of the hottest names on the British culinary scene. Yotam Ottolenghi, Nigella Lawson, and Gordon Ramsay all sing her praises, and the literary great Salman Rushdie is one of the many fans you'll find frequenting her fashionable London restaurant, Jaconi. Ravinda Bogle is an award-winning food writer and restaurateur, and her brand-new cookbook is on everybody's lips. Jaconi proudly inauthentic recipes from an immigrant kitchen, serves up inventive, border-blending dishes and a tapestry of stories behind the food, people, and places that inspire her. The cookbook is a love letter to immigrant culture, celebrating recipes deeply rooted in her Indian heritage, Kenyan homeland... British upbringing and extensive global travels. Chikoni means kitchen in Swahili, a name inspired by an idyllic childhood in Kenya. This episode is brimming with nostalgia, as Ravinda reminisces about her early years spent in Nairobi and will sweep you away on a flavour-filled journey from the shores of Mombasa to a memorable meal in the shadow of Sicily's Mount Etna. Her passionate pursuit of fresh produce and unusual ingredients will transport you to the bustling bazaars of Kazakhstan before heading to Mumbai in search of the city's most tantalizing tali platter. Here's Ravinda Bogle. Hello, Ravinda. How are you? I'm very well, Edwina. Really
1: lovely to be speaking to you this morning.
0: Oh, it's such a treat to have you on the podcast. One of the things that I love about your recently released Jaconi cookbook is that it feels both nostalgic and intoxicatingly new and innovative, and you borrow and finely balance flavours from all corners of the globe. And as a cookbook, author, restaurateur, and writer, your creativity knows no bounds, and no borders for that matter. So I'm really looking forward to delving into some truly delicious destinations with you today. But before we get stuck into it, where in the world are you at the moment?
1: Right now, I'm sitting in my Northwest London flat, but I wish I was abroad. I mean, I... I live for travel, Mm. so I haven't traveled for a while
0: now. So I'm sort of getting itchy feet, wanting to wander. I don't blame you. You're a person who's led this life that's rich in different cultures and travel experiences. So let's start at the beginning. Do you have any vivid childhood travel memories that you could share with us?
1: I think for me, I grew up in Kenya and A lot of the memories I have are visiting England as a very sort of young girl. And, you know, we had family here in England. And I remember making trips to Leeds where we had an aunt. So being in a car, being very sort of bothered, (laughs) you know, such long journeys, (laughs) feeling actually very travel sick. you know, that road that just seems to go on forever when you're a child. Um, my father's car breaking down because it was this rickety station wagon, you know, all these kinds of things. Mm. I remember stopping at a service station. I'd never seen a service station before and eating at this cafeteria and my father's fondness for kitsch English food, which included things like gammon with pineapple. (laughs) (laughs) other oddities because he would have been here studying in the 70s or whatever and, you know, watching him eat this gammon and pineapple at this service station so that I guess isn't isn't the sort of most romantic childhood travel memory but I think it was other things like you know everything seemed very exotic and we'd go to places like Hamleys and mm-hmm. you know biscuit tins from Fortnum and Mason and it all seems very very jolly and very fun mm-hmm. but other than that I guess it was memories of traveling around Kenya going to places like Mombasa mm-hmm. again on on the road uh, you know traveling for hours on re- really, really hairy roads. They were, I remember being quite terrified actually as a child because there were so many terrible accidents that happened on those roads. And it seemed every few weeks you heard of someone being killed on these roads. And I remember the kind of activity that would happen before these trips, like my mother running around the kitchen being really sort of busy um, and hectic, putting together a picnic for this long journey, making all sorts of delicious things and sort of getting under her feet and, you know, being excited about all the lovely things
0: she was packing. Mm, I can imagine the anticipation of that journey ahead. And what was it like when you got to Mombasa? Can you describe what it was like for us? Just, I mean,
1: idyllic. I have to say, I don't have very strong, vivid memories of, of those times because I was quite would have been very, very young. But I remember it being really, really hot and the air almost tasting salty. <laughs> you know, the smell of the salt, of hot salt. I remember eating, you know, great seafood, but just sort of playing more, being on the beach. My mother really fretting about us not going into the water because she couldn't swim. So she was always terrified that we'd drown. Oh. But I remember just just the hustle and the bustle, because you'd always go with extended family. Everyone would pile into their cars and the cars always just seemed to go so slowly because of course the roads were so
0: dangerous. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting that so many of my guests on this podcast actually reminisce about their childhood travel memories, usually revolving around long car journeys, but you are the first to describe a road trip to Mombasa. Now, Mombasa, is that the port where your grandfather very bravely arrived in search of new opportunities after a long voyage from India?
1: Yes, he would have done. Um, My grandfather, I think, has probably been the biggest inspiration of my life. Um, He died when I was very, very young, but I have extremely vivid memories of him. And he's sort of a legend in our family. So he left India in the 1940s basically ran away from home thinking there must be more to life than this very provincial Punjabi life. He was in North India and him and his brothers sort of plotted and said to their wives, look, we got to get out, like something's got to give. And uh, they left their wives behind and said, we're going to go in search for opportunities. So they landed up in Bombay where there were adverts for ships sailing to Kenya. And he basically thought, okay, great, gets on this ship, which sailed apparently for something like 26 days, only to come back to Bombay because something had gone wrong with it. I didn't hear this from him, but there are other relatives who made similar journeys, who talked about starvation, Mm. who talked about bodies being flung into the sea. So they would have really suffered. And His brother was like, I'm never going to do that journey again. Whereas my grandfather was an adventurer and he just said, Well, I will. And a month or so later, he set sail again and landed up in Mombasa and just fell so deeply in love with this uh, backdrop of blossoming trees and botanical wonder and red alluvial benevolent earth. Mm. And he never experienced anything like it and just said, this is it. This is where I'll lay down our roots. And 7 years later, he called for my grandmother and she joined him with my father. He really did lay down our roots because it's where I was born then and it's just magical how he really he worked really, really hard, but he really integrated into the community. He learned to speak Swahili, he learned about the local food, he built a house from scratch. He was just a really
0: remarkable character. That's so impressive. It must have been so challenging starting this new life and setting up a home in a completely foreign land. Yeah, yes. He was basically
1: tricked by someone who sold him a plot of land that was barren and he just... Worked on it with such love and passion that actually it blossomed. Wow. And uh, the story goes that w- the neighbors who'd sold him this plot of land were so insanely jealous of how he'd made this work that they poisoned him. <gasps> And he ended up in a in an asylum for, I think, a couple of years because the, the poison had actually poisoned his brain. So he didn't have recollection of who he was. And oh it's only some years later when there was a guy who was again from his village and someone said, oh, I think there's someone from your village, you know, in this asylum. And that man nursed him back to health. So it's quite an epic story. And I just wish I had clearer details. I I never really got to sit with my father and ask him. There must have been a lot of trauma attached to those memories. And we came to Kenya with nothing. Mm. And to survive and then not only survive, but prosper would have taken a very strong personality
0: yeah a remarkable personality and such an adventurous spirit as yeah, well yeah a rebel heart <laughs> yeah a real rebel a real rebel heart what a great way to, to put it your grandfather's love of kenya was certainly passed down to you your descriptions in your book uh, jaconi are just pure magic what what was it like growing up in nairobi i think the landscape in kenya
1: is so Magical. It's so bewitching. Again, you know, I remember that red earth playing in that soil that stained your white shoes. It was just extraordinary the smells, the sights, the sounds, how vast everything was, how colossal the sky and the trees seemed. And even now, when I go back and I see these ancient trees, I'm just like, wow like this is huge. I've never seen sky as wide as that. And you can imagine to a child, it would have just seemed extraordinary. Mm. But then, you know, growing up in this very noisy, very chaotic family, because we lived in an extended family. So there was my nuclear clan, that wasn't small, there were four sisters, and I was the younger sister, and then a brother after me, my grandparents, my aunt and uncle and their children. And then it was a very open house policy and that came... From my grandfather's generosity of wanting to always help people. Mm. So whenever someone visited from India or the UK or from wherever, they just found themselves staying with us. And my father also had this habit. He was a real socializer, loved people, loved a good party. So he was just constantly meeting very interesting people. With his job, he was an aeronautical engineer and At no notice, would just bring people home for dinner. (laughs) So my mother was just constantly in the kitchen. (laughs) Yeah, I know, and it—you know—it was like that. It was a very, very social. Uh, world. And you always had to be ready to entertain. You just never knew when someone was going to drop in. So the cooking that happened often happened in a very kind of communal way. So everyone had to get involved, including me from a very young age. My mom dragged me off the tricycle and into the (laughs) kitchen and just was like, you're going to have to learn to cook. A lot of the times Things were made in bulk. So there were particular snacks that were ready to go, ready prepared, whether it was samosas that could just be fried or these delicious North Indian crackers called mutties with lots of pickles and chutneys and all that kind of stuff. And I think those were my favourite days is when the communal cooking happened because often that happened with a group of women. So they'd be like, a day when my mother would get up very, very early and all these ladies from all walks of life would just come to our house, sort of clip-clopping across the pistachio green terrazzo in our veranda. And they'd come in and they'd make 500 samosas or they'd make these matis or whatever it was that they were making In and amongst that, there was this kind of coming together of these women. And sometimes it was like a therapy session for them. It was very healing because... A lot of these women didn't have a space that they could go to to air any problems that they might have been facing, and that environment was a very safe space for them to talk about what they might be going through. But I just remember just loving it because you'd have all these very skilled women, each with their own individual story, each cooked their own speciality as unique as their fingerprints. Mm-hmm. And I was a sort of little girl trying to peer into the pots and pans (laughs) and getting in their way. But they just showed me such love and kindness and just watching them cook these things, some of those things which I no longer know or haven't tasted since then. And I feel sad because, you know, a lot of these women have now died. And I always say that sometimes when these women die, it's like libraries have been burnt down because... That knowledge just goes with them. So they're really archaic things. Like there's a dish called, uh, well, there are these things called vadis, which are like dumplings made out of ground lentils that are very, very spicy. Mm-hmm. And they have to be made in the summer because what they used to do is they'd go up on the roof terrace of the house and they'd lay out tarpaulin and then they would spoon bits of that mixture onto this this sheet And they would let that dry in the sun. And then in the winter, you had a store of these delicious lentil dumplings that would be reconstituted with like a turmeric glazed curry sauce, and they would sort of go soft, and the texture would change. But they'd be like I guess how you'd have dried pasta Mm -hmm. it was similar but made with ground lentils and just very very spicy so all these old archaic things which I long for um, that have gone out of fashion and I'm trying to revive
0: in whichever way I can oh and you really are keeping those traditions alive and the characters in your book they really really come to life as you capture those memories so beautifully I especially adore your portrayal of the pickle maker and her little shed would you be able to tell us about her yeah
1: so um she was incredible it's worth saying that i really wanted to write about these women because they have moved me so deeply. And even though I was very young, and I have very patchy memories about them, what remains and has remained with me is how kind they all were to me. They were also incredibly inspiring because at that time, women didn't really work. They didn't go to offices and work. It was the men who did that. And these women were still sort of wily and astute and made little businesses or sort of little cottage industries. And the pickle maker was one of these who, you know, she was a widow. She knew she had to provide for herself. There was no welfare system or anything like that. So she taught herself enough basic arithmetic to basically start up this little pickling business, mm-hmm. pickles and chutneys. And she made the most incredible ones. I've never tasted pickles like hers. To go to her house, it was it, it was just incredible. So on Sundays, my mom would send me and my cousin with empty glass jars clanking in our satchels and she was deaf and often we'd just have to stand there at the gate yelling for her until she kind of let us in and she just loved what she did. It was clear. And she knew her pickles were really, really popular. And I think women like her were the first female entrepreneurs really I'd ever come across. And I just found them so inspiring. And I remember she had this little pickling shed with all the kind of bits of paraphernalia from big pestle and mortars to jars. And and I just sort of pick everything up and be nosy and be like, what's this? What's that? <laughs> and she never once got impatient with me. I just loved watching her sell as well, how she would lay everything out, almost like bait, mm. and then you'd taste it and you'd be like, oh my God, that's amazing. I have to have that. So inevitably, people would just buy everything
0: she had. Did you have a favorite a pickle that she made?
1: Yeah, I still remember her lime pickle, the way it kind of trod that balance between sweet and sour and just in enough spice. For me... Her pickles are the taste of home. If I were to think of my childhood and the things that really stood out to me that I ate as a child, her pickles would definitely
0: be one of those things. Oh, it's so wonderful how you've immortalised the pickle maker in the pages of your book. And in your writing, you elaborate on this idea of clinging to taste memories. And it's such a beautiful concept that something that you once tasted, like that lime pickle, can really transport you back to another time and another place in your life. And in your book as well, you paint paint this picture of the halcyon days of living in a big old house in Kenya and the nostalgia is just intoxicating. Can you share some of these descriptions with the listeners?
1: Yeah so you know it was a a house that my grandfather had built and it was this whitewashed house that was just full of all these for, for me as a child full of nooks and crannies and places like it was a great house to play hide and seek in you know it had various artifacts that my grandmother had collected over the years from a grandfather's clock to like very English Chesterfield sofas to all of these things. It was a, a big house with a big courtyard where we used to play. And then there was beyond that, there was a chicken shed. The neighbors across the road, the Somali neighbors had a herd of goats. So often these goats would wander across <laughs> to our house. There was. um Like I said, the chicken shed, there was a cat that had given, uh, you know, a litter of kittens. I remember that really well. I remember the trees. There was a guava tree. If you've ever smelt guavas growing on a tree, it's like the most narcotic smell or scent They just tinge everything. If you have a guava in a room, Mm. the whole house will smell of guavas. It's just such a beautiful fragrance. And then there was this colossal tree, which I don't know what the English word for this fruit is, but I've not come across it in this country. It's called Mm jaman. And they are these, like, they partly look like plums, but they also look a bit like black grapes. And I remember when they were in season, Climbing that tree uh, to get to the fruit because it was so delicious. But the ants would also be attracted to their sweetness. (laughs) So the tree would be crawling with ants. I don't think I got very far up because I was so small, but I do remember my sisters who were older getting high
0: up into the tree and watching them pick this fruit. Wow I've never tried German fruit before but I'll have to seek it out because I do love exotic fruits um, and also I believe that the guava that I've tasted in Australia and in England has been very different to the to the kind that you grew up with. Can you describe the Kenyan guavas for us?
1: I mean to start with the skin is like pistachio green it's very very thin And inside, they blaze fuchsia. So they're really, you can almost see through this very transparent skin, this deeply pink interior. So they're just so beautiful to look at. And we would cut them and eat them with a mixture of salt, sugar, and chili sprinkled over them. And they are just delicious. You know, when I have a guava, I get very emotional. Recently, on my birthday, my, my husband managed to track some pink guavas down but I just feasted on them it was like you're touching the past Mm. that that was wonderful and then the other thing that was actually banned my mother hated us eating them was the thing that now everyone talks about being a superfood was baobab. And it's so readily available in Kenya. They um, they mix it with a sugar syrup and put lots of red food colouring in it.
0: By baobab, do you mean those um, trees with the swollen sort of pregnant-looking trunks that you can find in Australia and on the African continent?
1: Yeah, exactly. So baobab would be collected and then it would be uh, turned into this candy which had loads of red food coloring in it, which stained your teeth and your mouth. (laughs) But anytime I had a couple of shillings, I would plot with my cousin to go to the local kiosk to buy them (laughs) where they sold them in like these little, very scant um, polythene bags. And, you know, you'd have maybe 15 or 20 of them inside these little candies. And we'd be like,
0: okay, let's hide and eat (laughs) them. But then, of course, your mother would realise when she sees that your tongue is completely red. Yeah, I mean, we'd try and brush our teeth, you know, before, but
1: the evidence was always there, always stained. But yeah, they were so addictive
0: to eat. Even now, if I ever come across them, I can't stop eating them. It sounds like, I mean, your childhood in Nairobi sounds almost like a sort of exotic version of an Enid Blyton novel climbing trees and having these adventures out in nature. Yeah. And then, of course, when you were seven, your family suddenly relocated from Nairobi to the UK. Was that a huge culture shock for you? Massive. You
1: go from living in this very, like I said, colossal sky, you know, nature, which is just the most impolite kind of nature because everything grows over each other. It doesn't care for manners or being polite. (laughs) You know, that's how I think of it then suddenly you're in this very barren, very urban place. So it was was a real shock to the system, more so because my parents didn't actually tell us that we were moving here. Mm -hmm. You know, I assumed we were coming for a holiday and actually the reality was very, very different. And we were living in this small flat above a shop that had no central heating. Times were suddenly very, very hard. We didn't even have a washing machine and come from this very kind of almost palatial uh, lifestyle Mm. in Kenya. So it was a real shock to the system. And I was desperately homesick and really, really sad for a long time and constantly looking for ways that
0: I could connect with with home and I think that's where food really came in. Mm, and that nostalgia and celebration of the past really sings in the pages of your cookbook, Jaconi. What inspired you to commit these recipes to print and to share all those very personal stories and glorious food related memories?
1: I mean, I think that that as a book it was always in me. You know, it's it's sort of a love letter to immigrants and that immigrant culture of people who've crossed so many uh, borders, where their food becomes so diverse, where you're so, you you arrive in a new country and like me, you're so precious about preserving your old culinary heritage because that's self-preservation. You want to hold on to that. But then as you begin to settle, you start overlaying that, your traditions with the traditions of your new country. And that Blend is what I think immigrant food is. It's that willingness to adapt, to fuse, you know, your old life with your new, and find a place for yourself in the world through food. So the recipes were obvious to me in a way because they were either things that I cooked that had been really popular uh, with my husband or with friends or. Things that I put on the menu that were classics, that it were really you know people constantly coming to the restaurant and asking me for the recipe for this, that, or the other, and I think it was it was more writing the stories that was the difficult part because I really wanted to pay tribute, like I said, to these characters who had really moved me, who've been an invisible part of who I am and who, what I've become. They were so skilled and so tenacious and so brilliant. They were like geniuses in the kitchen, uh, so well-versed in flavors and ingredients. And in a way, I feel that I am a product of all of those women and all of the wisdom that they shared with me so generously. Mm. And you know, even the restaurant being called Jikoni, which means kitchen in Swahili, mm-hmm is a tribute to them and that place, that sort of domestic maternal cooking. It's not about restaurant food. It's this very underrepresented maternal way of cooking, which is what we do at the restaurant.
0: Is there a particular recipe in the book that really speaks to that notion?
1: Yeah, probably things like the Mattis or there's the dal as well with them, um, which I've slightly modernized by putting uh, wild garlic in it. But the matis, it's that sort of maternal tradition of making a dough and then really working it with a rolling pin and knowing how to move that rolling pin across dough to get it even all the way across and things like that, making this, the samosas. Of course, they're not traditional samosas in my in my book but the tradition of making them very much came from those women so yeah lots of these uh, recipes are really love letters to these incredible women
0: and you also seem to have an insatiable appetite for flavors from all faraway lands like as i flick through the pages of the book there are flavors borrowed from all corners of the globe. I, I can see Mediterranean, I can see uh, Middle Eastern, Georgian, Japanese, Korean, Moroccan, Indonesian, Thai, Burmese, Malaysian, Chinese. I mean, there's just, it's, it's like a yeah. melting pot of flavors. You know, it's this magnificent mashup. And as a keen traveler, you come across these unique ingredients and culinary techniques from around the world. How does that translate into your own recipes? Do you have an example of a recipe that fits in with that?
1: Um, Yeah, I guess the pierogi. So that was actually inspired because I love pierogi and I've You know, eaten lots of different types of pierogi, and actually, when I went to Kazakhstan, they have they call them mantis. So it was actually more more the manti that I'd eaten and really enjoyed. And I just thought, how wonderful! What an opportunity to use this dumpling to fill with whatever you think you can fill with. And we'd just hired a female chef who was from Poland, and one day I said to her. I really want to make some pierogi. And she was very doubtful. And I said, let's make the dough. I have an idea for the interior. We did a vegetarian version, which was like paneer, which is Indian cottage cheese, which we make fresh at the restaurant, which we put through lots of herbs and spices and made this really interesting filling, stuffed into the pierogi, boiled it, and then covered it with this Turkish-inspired hot yoghurt sauce, which I'd eaten when I was in, in Istanbul. So my version of that with a pul biber butter. And it's just so delicious. And I remember this lady I was working with just being completely perplexed at what on earth I was doing (laughs) with the pierogi to the point she even said, you know, the Poles and the Turks, they don't get on because I told her I was making a a Turkish hot yogurt sauce. And I was like, well, they're going to get on fine on this plate. And it just went on to become this insanely popular dish Mm. to the point. I mean, we're a very small restaurant with a small team. We used to have to limit it to 20 portions a day because (laughs) it's all handmade. So we'd be like, if it runs out, it runs out. You snooze, you lose. (laughs)
0: Well, that really goes to show how your travels have inspired your recipes. But now a little closer to where you call home. Of course, they say when you tire of London, you tire of life because there's just so much to see and do on your very own doorstep. So what would be your idea of a perfect way to spend a perfect day in London?
1: Well, I think it would begin uh, with waking up in a hotel. There's nothing like staying in a hotel in your own city. Um, I recently stayed at the Rosewood in London a few months ago. And that was just wonderful. Just the service, their hospitality is really, really wonderful. And everything is just all the details in the room. I'm all about detail. People say the devil is in the details. I say God is in the
0: details.
1: (laughs) That kind of, um, you know, attention to detail really requires someone very, very smart. And they seem to have that down. And then I think we have such wonderful green spaces in London. So I think a park like Regent's Park, Mm -hmm. a nice morning stroll, maybe in the Italian gardens at Regent's Park. It's where my husband proposed to me. So it's always, uh, you know, full of lovely romantic memories. And then perhaps I totter over to the Wolseley for brunch. I love the Wolseley. Everything they do is impeccable. You know, they make you feel welcomed they always remember you. And I just always have a good time whenever I'm there.
0: And it's in that sort of grand European style. And and the interior is like that black marble. And it's just so beautiful, the space as well. So
1: beautiful. And I always say in the evenings, I mean, I often go there in the evenings for dinner because post-service, there are a few places open that we k- will get served at. So we sometimes go for a very late night dinner there. And their lighting, I call it, vanity lighting it just makes everyone look beautiful you know you can you can just
0: feel like it's like being lit by candlelight it's just it's just gorgeous what's your go-to what dish would you order at the Wolseley? Well, I
1: really like that they do this uh, plat du jour thing. So they ever-changing dishes. And if you go on a Saturday night, they have a very kind of retro chicken Kiev. But otherwise, they do a souffle suisse if you're wanting to be really indulgent. It's just lots of cheese and cream, but it's just
0: Delicious to eat. Oh, now you have me really fancying a late night supper at the Walsley. But speaking of places to eat, Jaconi is your fabulous restaurant in Malibone. And that part of London has a real villagey feel. It's very chic. Yeah. What would you recommend doing in that neighbourhood? Well, obviously coming to Ciccone,
1: you can't come to Marylebone and not come to Ciccone. But other than that, there are so many wonderful things around. So there's the Wallace Collection, which is just an incredible art and history space. And currently they are running uh, an exhibition called Forgotten Masters, which has been curated by a great friend, uh, William Dalrymple, the historian, And it's just the most fascinating collection of art that was commissioned by the East India Company when colonization was ravaging uh, so many countries. And they're all Indian artists who were commissioned. And when these paintings were found, they just sort of said, property of the East India Company, and no Mention was made of the names of the artists. All oh, right, what their lives were, who they were, and I just think that's so sad.
0: It's like a complete erasure of the, yeah, the artist, which is
1: which is why it's you know cleverly called "Forgotten Masters" because they were they were complete masters of their work, and so William has gone and found the histories of these artists and told their story, which I think is is just so important and so brilliant. Other than that, um, I would walk down Marylebone High Street. Of course, there are lots of lovely shops. My favorite shop on Marylebone High Street is Daunt Books.
0: Oh my gosh, that's my favorite too. Uh, I was hoping you are going to bring that up. <laughs> it's just Uh, you
1: know, for me, it's a haven. I can be lost in there for an hour. I just love everything about the building. I love how they set out books. I love how they're all experts. I mean, I went in recently and uh, gone in with a very specific mind of buying two books. Mm -hmm. And I came out with five. because (laughs) They just are so good at talking about books. It just makes you want to have everything.
0: So I love Daunt Books. Ah, that is a sign of a good bookstore, and it's such a wonderful space to spend an afternoon. Um, It's retained those original Edwardian interiors with the long oak galleries and those heavenly skylights that let. The um let the sun shine through, and for listeners of the podcast, they might be interested to know that although um you can find all the different genres, they Daunt Books do actually specialize in travel. Yes. So anyone heading to Marla pop into Jaconia for a bite to eat, and then spend a few hours in Daunt Books, immersing yourself in the world of travel. And speaking of travel inspiration, something that I love to ask all my guests, and I really would like to hear your answer, Ravinda, is there a book, a film, a song, or piece of art that has inspired you to travel somewhere?
1: Yeah, there's been lots of... um you know, books, films, that for all for different reasons that have inspired me to travel to places. I think notably watching Stealing Beauty as a young, teena- you know, teenager, mm-hmm. just seeing the landscape of Tuscany um, and Umbria. I was just like, I just need to go there. It's just so beautiful, that backdrop. And so I did, and I found out where it was shot. Amazing. And we went to a little village called Cortona, which is just so beautiful. It's kind of on the Tuscany-Umbria borders. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a town in itself. It's just very, very small. Like you can see everything there is to see in a day, but to have a week to spend there is luxurious. Mm. I love churches and there are so many beautiful churches in that little area. And I am not talking like simple churches. These are like grand, almost like cathedrals. And there must be about four or five of them. And each has its own character and rituals and beliefs and graveyards that are just so beautifully kept even some of those people passed away like a hundred years ago, Mm. they still had family who had continued to live in the area who were still going and honoring the graves. And I thought that was really, really beautiful, very moving. So it does feel like, you know, you're touching history and and you are literally touching history in Cortona because you wander around and there are Etruscan walls. There's this fantastic museum that houses lots of sort of uh, Etruscan artifacts as well. So that's really really beautiful it's a walking city as well like you know you walk and you get higher and higher as you do in often those sort of hilly tuscan villages so the views are really really great and there's one restaurant i must mention in particular called trattoria dadano and it's owned by a chef called paolo costello i have never been moved to visit a restaurant four or five times in a row but I did with his restaurant. It is extraordinary. So I was lost in the square and trying to think where to eat. And there's such a sort of lovely community family atmosphere and there's this little bar in the square in the piazza uh, with people drinking and someone noticed I obviously look like a tourist and this guy just took me under his wing and his wife and they said look we're actually going to a christening dinner at this restaurant and it's not touristy it's like where everyone goes here And you must come and and eat there. And right now they have a speciality, which is pasta with snails. And the snails are all harvested here because it's the season. I just thought it was amazing. So I followed them to this restaurant and just... It was just like being greeted with a warm hug, this larger-than-life character. And it's him and his mother who own the restaurant. They have done. Their families owned it for a generation. And they have a farm where they're rearing their own animals, growing their own produce, but they don't even call it farm-to-table. It's just very natural how, how it happens. They're not showing off about it or labeling it. And, you know, the tiramisu, oh... It's just extraordinary. It has no shape or form and Mm. it just gets piled onto a plate where it collapses into a sort of wonderful mulch. And it comes out of a large bowl. And I remember one night sitting there and literally scraping my plate because it was so good. (laughs) And Paolo comes out with the entire bowl this huge bowl of tiramisu and just places it on my, on our table. Oh, and he's wow. like knock yourself out. And that such generosity, such generosity, and just just people who do it for the love of what they're doing, and it really shows. And it, it was just such a wonderful
0: discovery. Mm. And food is such a connector as well. And I find in places like Italy that generosity of spirit, welcoming you into their home. I remember. When I was in Syracuse in, in Sicily, I went Beautiful. early one morning to this um, open-air market that had this atmosphere of uh, North African souk because it had dried fruits and nuts and spices all piled high and, and fresh fruit stalls perfumed with the scent of those much-prized Syracuse lemons and um, fishermen stalls all sort of overflowing with the catch of the day like spiky sea urchins and slabs of mm. tuna and heads of um, swordfish displayed like trophies. and. There's this chorus of theatrical street-side vendors shouting out in that old Sicilian dialect. And as I was exploring this market, I came across this tiny little sandwich shop and I sort of poked my head in and and I ended up meeting the family that ran it. And it was um, before they'd started preparing the sandwiches for the day and they were making fresh mozzarella. And so oh. they happened to invite me in, and and I found myself for the next hour or two, you know, hand stretching the mozzarella with them, learning all about it, meeting the grandfather who had, you know, um, gone that morning and collected the the milk, and and it was just, you know, that exact that hospitality. I, it's just yeah. those food memories or travel memories are really what make a trip
1: and it's you know for me it's also like people's enthusiasm and joy at produce Mm. and wanting to they know how good it is and they're just dying to share that experience with someone because they want
0: to see you enjoy it you're so right and what do you think is your most memorable meal that you've had on holiday
1: Oh, I think that would be Sicily. So uh, so this was, we were staying uh, on the foothills of Mount Etna. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful. Like we were staying in a very rural village on this house that turned out to be extraordinary. Like we'd booked this house on the internet and this is before a Airbnb. And then we turned up and found ourselves on this farmhouse with acres of land to ourselves that had blood orange trees and fig trees and
0: apricot trees and everything which was blooming, basically. Oh, my gosh, that sounds so gorgeous. And I'm not surprised that Sicily is where you had your most memorable meal because it is such a destination for food lovers.
1: Yeah, exactly. We had this terrible flight, delays and lost luggage and everything you could throw at us that was bad happened. And so we landed in not particularly uh, you know, pleasant mood. And also <laughs> because we were so delayed, we were starving. And it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. And of course it's like siesta time. So we got our hire car and we're driving around and um, there was this restaurant and this incredible smell <laughs> emanating from this restaurant. And the door was slightly ajar So we kind of go in and and the two octogenarian, really grumpy old lady and, and gentleman they were just like, no, we have a private party, we can't serve you. And I was just like, I think I must have done my best puppy dog eyes ever. (laughs) And you've got those big, beautiful eyes too. So it'd be doubly (laughs)
0: effective.
1: (laughs) Thank you. So I just begged him to feed us. And so they agreed and they said, okay, fine, we're just going to bring you out whatever there is, no menu, etc. And then out comes this feast and it was just plate upon plate of incredible food oh, so there was it. this like wobbling uh, mozzarella that came out with the greenest grassiest olive oil and buxom tomatoes and lots of fresh basil and then there was a pasta a la norma which was just perfectly done green beans with just olive oil and some hazelnuts or something like that But what was hilarious was this old man who'd been so gruff with us and so almost so rude comes out wearing an apron, which is basically like the naked David. (laughs) It was just the funniest thing. And he suddenly, you just realise that it was, he was actually a really nice guy and very, very funny, but just had this manner that was very gruff.
0: I know the apron that you're talking about, they sell them in Florence and and it's got that picture. It's sort of like half of his body and you wear it and it covers your torso. So he's wearing that ridiculous apron and comes out.
1: And he was tiny and this, this, I mean, the the apron was almost touching the floor, (laughs) which made it even funnier. But, you know,
0: we just had one of the most, memorable lunch at that place yes and in the foothills of Mount Etna that soil is so rich and it creates the most exquisite produce
1: yeah it's partly the reason that I love um, that area so much is the soil quality is actually very very similar to Kenya so this alluvial volcanic soil that we have in Kenya is similar to that soil when I tasted the tomatoes in Sicily, they reminded me of the tomatoes I ate in Kenya, where you don't need much more than salt. It's just a tiny bit of salt and they mm. taste incredible.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. When I was... Last in Sicily, I experienced a, um, a small earthquake and I asked the locals about what it was like to live in the, the looming shadow of Mount Etna and perhaps the fear that it might bring um, to one's daily life. But a lot of the Sicilians said to me, you know, it's also the giver of life. This beautiful produce that we have in abundance is because of Mount Etna. So we don't fear the volcano. Um, it's something that we, we revere and are grateful for. Um, and I love that your food memories are from Sicily and you obviously are such a fan of fresh produce. So um, I found it also really funny how you snuck in the door um, and managed to convince them to feed you. And you obviously have quite a, a nose for finding these hidden gems. Um, do you have any recommendations for how to uncover these foodie treasures on your trips I mean
1: it's a common one I guess but I always ask the taxi drivers where they eat and I think I found that when I was traveling in Kazakhstan I being taken I was being hosted and I went to a lot of very very showy very fancy places which I was like okay but I may as well be in in Europe somewhere and this isn't really truly showing me what Kazakh food or the culture is all about Mm. And, you know, it's such a mixed culture there as well, because, of course, they have the influence of the Ottoman Empire, Russian influence, Georgian influence, and then sort of a lot of uh, Chinese and Korean influence too. And so I got quite fed up of eating this really fancy, I think I went to like three sushi restaurants and I was like, well, no. <laughs> I may as well be in yeah. Japan or, or London actually. But I then remember asking a taxi driver and saying, well, where do you eat? And he took us to this house. It was just a house. It wasn't even a restaurant. And in someone's front room, they'd converted it into like a supper club-y, restaurant-y type of place with like formica tables and Soviet era furniture and the food was all Chinese Muslim food, which I've never eaten. They call them Ayyagr in Kazakhstan, but it's a Uyghur community Mm -hmm. in Kazakhstan. And because it's so cold, they use a lot of chili, dried chilies, and a lot of things like szechuan pepper. And the meal I had was the best I had in the whole of Kazakhstan. It was so different to anything I'd experienced. So yeah always ask a taxi
0: driver. And where in Kazakhstan was that exactly? That was in Almaty. Almaty. And in Kazakhstan, are there any, I, I've personally never been, is there anywhere like a highlight or destination that you yeah, would direct someone to? Yeah, definitely. Lives?
1: I only went to uh, two two towns, Almaty being the main one, mm-hmm. but uh, do not miss the Zeloni Bazaar, which is the green market. It is incredible, like the produce that you get, the dried fruit, for instance, you know, so they have really um, generous springs and summers in Kazakhstan that produce the most incredible fruit, berries mainly. Uh, So mulberries and amazing pomegranates and all sorts of things, which they then dry and preserve and you buy at these markets, just the most delicious dried fruit. And then You see all these uh, cultures, the diversity of what Kazakhstan is all about and all the various invasions and what they've created in terms of food culture. You see everything from Turkish bread stalls to, you know, Georgian, Kazakh food, the mantis and dumplings and things. There was one stall, for example, who were making uh, like Korean uh, rice rolls. And so they had these big crock pots of different types of pickled kimchi and pickled seaweeds and really, really interesting things. What did surprise me and shock me slightly was walking in the um, row of kind of meat and butchers I remember looking up at this leg that was kind of hanging up, thinking there can't be a lamb leg. It's just huge. Mm. And it wasn't. It was a horse leg. Oh, right. So there's, a, you know, the, the speciality there is horse. They eat a lot of horse and horse salami and... Uh, cheese made from camel's milk and camel milk is a big thing there so it's incredibly
0: different and and very very inspiring wow I had no idea how interesting the food in Kazakhstan is and I would love to wander around that market and see those things for myself before we start to wrap up there's a question that I'd love to ask you and that is as a cook or restaurateur is there a destination that inspired you or continues to inspire you creatively
1: I think every time I go to um, India, so I, I visit India maybe once a year and Bombay in particular for me is just such an exciting city because it's so modern, but it's so old as well. There are so many diverse communities from all over India. And I think you can eat the entire regionality of the country in Bombay. You can have North Indian food. You can have South Indian food. You can have Maharashtrian food. You can have street food. You can have fancy food. You can have the most shishi Italian and European food too. Mm. And it's just a really, really electric city. But what I found in my last couple of visits, which I really love, is... What the kind of young blood chefs in Bombay are doing with traditional Maharashtrian cuisine, preserving the heritage, but they're presenting it in a very, very new and interesting way. It's all about artisans making produce on their home turf. And I find that incredibly interesting and inspiring.
0: And where would you direct someone who hasn't been to Mumbai before for them to experience this? Is there a restaurant that you'd recommend or or a a street stall that you'd you'd say you have to go to?
1: 100% without a shadow of doubt, anyone visiting Mumbai has to go to a place called Shri Thakkar Bojanwali,
0: which
1: is a long word. And it's a thali place. A thali is a kind of a a platter on which you have lots of different dishes. It's 100% vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And depending on what the season is, their menu changes accordingly. When I was last there... It was Alfonso mango season. So the entire platter was a celebration, sweet, sour, savoury, hot, spicy, all these kinds of flavours, but using mango. And they have all these breads and they mill their own grains and... They will just come and keep refilling your plate until you basically collapse and beg them not to feed you anymore.
0: (laughs) I'm hungry just thinking about it. You're making us all hungry just thinking (laughs) about it. Um, But before we wrap up, I'd be really interested to know where you're dreaming of escaping to next. Oh,
1: (laughs) good question. Well, it's very, very sad with everything that's just happened in Beirut because Mm that was really top of my list. So there's a a place in particular called Beit Duma, which is run by the most inspiring, sort of idealistic man who really believes in cultures coming together, different religious denominations cooking together and sort of peace, make make food, not war, is his kind of mantra. And he has this incredible uh, hotel called Beit Duma, where It's all women who cook in the Lebanese countryside. And that was very much at the top of my list. And I
0: wanted to go there for such a long time. Oh, well, we all hope that they get back on their feet and um, recover from what's happened and that you get to visit there sometime soon as well and ravinda it's been such a joy uncovering some of your most appetizing adventures around the world i'm uh, having some friends over this weekend and i'm going to whip up some of your famous pina colada pancakes as a treat <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me today it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me That was the innovative restaurateur and food writer Ravinda Bogle. I don't know about you, but I'm certainly dying to taste her coveted pierogies at her restaurant in London. Ravinda's gorgeous cookbook, Jokoni, proudly inauthentic recipes from an immigrant kitchen is out now. And with such a beautiful cover, it certainly has earned a spot on my coffee table. And thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. Of course, I'd love to hear from you. And if you're looking for some more travel inspiration, you can find me on Instagram at escape artist Podcast. See you next week for another episode of The Escape Artist.